tonight on Arena. Ashley O'Sullivan and Andrew Flynn on the first Irish production of Martin McDonough's Hangmen and conductor Leonard Slatkin on his upcoming concerts with the NSO. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. 58 years ago in 1965, British Labour MP Sidney Silverman brought forward a private member's bill to the House of Commons to suspend the death penalty for murder. The bill was passed overwhelmingly in both the Houses of Commons and the House of Lords. But as with any groundbreaking piece of legislation, certain people's noses were put out, not least the tiny group of people put out of work by the legislation, namely Britain's Hangmen. The moment, this moment in British history forms the backdrop to Martin McDonough's play Hangmen, which was originally staged in the West End in 2015, off-Broadway three years later. And the play makes its Irish debut on March the 11th at the Getty Theatre in Dublin. With me in studio this evening, director of that new production, Andrew Flynn, and one of the stars of the production, Ashley O'Sullivan. Uh, Andrew and Ashley, both of you have quite a, a long history, I suppose, with the works of Martin McDonough. But before we get get into that side of things maybe just the prologue the prologue to this play Andrew kind of sets out its stall really clearly what 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 we're dealing with it certainly does um I suppose hangman as you said is set in 65 and it's set on the day that hanging has been abolished and Harry Allen who runs uh the pub his pub with his wife Alice is holding court I suppose in the pub And it's kind of like a funeral. It's exciting because it's over, but he's still the centre of attention. And into that world comes a stranger. And from that moment on, everything takes, uh, Martin would call it a comic thriller. Um, It's just a play that it's entertaining, but it's dark and it's full of twists and just keeps you guessing. You know, you're trying to figure out what's going on and where is this play going? So it's, um, yeah, it's... It's an incredible Martin McDonough, dark, uh, exciting play that asks loads of questions and I suppose places that society up on the stage for us and reflects on what kind of society it was. And and the character that you play here then, Ashley, in the character of Alice is the wife of Harry Wade. Yeah. Britain's second best hangman. (laughs) Poor chap. Yeah. He's, He's... I he's, know he's, he's eaten up with envy. Yeah. Well, I did hear somebody saying he's a bit hung up about that. He is hung up with that. Yeah, he's very. He, they write well, themselves, he, don't they? He would be small, a bit small-minded, <laughs> <laughs> just a wee bit. But uh, where? How would you describe her role in all of this and where she fits into the play, Ashley? Um, there's there are so many levels in the play. Um, there is sort of the there's a screwball element to it. There's sort of a thriller element to it. There's a great love story element to it. Um, and the brilliance of it is that Martin kind of throws up these big themes with this fabulous um, f- firecracker language. Uh, and Alice is sort of um, the s- sidekick to this almost circus clown, mm. Harry Wade, her husband. But she, her, I think her job is to is to show uh, true feeling about their daughter when when things go. Yeah, because we, we there there 
as you said, as Andrew was saying, a stranger comes to town, yeah. they have a young daughter and the kind of the dynamic, first of all, between the stranger and the young daughter is uncomfortable to yeah. say the very least. And then it takes a, a kind of a dark turn where we're wondering who's doing what and who's doing what to whom. Yeah, it's kind of a terrifying play. In what It looks mm. at uh, violence and kind of the habit of violence. There's, there's sexism and... Um, racism. It it sh- it really shows mm. up what society was like just sixty years ago, which yeah. isn't too far in the past. Just your standard Martin McDonough play, <laughs> really. Standard, yeah, your standard <laughs> those, Martin. And I mean, I well, was saying, it's set in England. I was is, going to ask you yeah. the, the very question you took it out of me mouth on me, um, because you had been. I, I was checking about the. It was the cripple of Inishman. Cripple of Inishman. You were yeah. in the first ever production. I was in the very first production, uh, which was kind of the start of Martin McDonough's career. The kind of when people hadn't heard him up until that and the trilogy was done around it that. It kind time, of was. It? Everything kind of happened around then. I think Druid um, had that uh, fabulous uh, homage to him even though he mm. was only starting. Uh, he, they did the Beauty Queen of Linan which ended up going to Broadway and like it, it just won Tony's left, right and centre. Gary Hines, the first Irish female mm. director to win a Tony for that production. Um, it, it, it cemented Martin McDonagh as a, a world class, world famous writer. Um, so it was around that time when he started, it started percolating in mm. him what this was like. He, he, we're, I'm so amazed and proud of how, what he's achieved yeah in films and, and theatre and he's maintained an integrity about his his uh, work and he's also a very kind person which is kind of wonderful yeah, to see Yeah because you see you, you see and read the writing and you think where, what kind of a mind is that come but yeah. when you meet Martin McDonough he's disarmingly charming He is and he's moral and, and that's not in he's a smarmy way person. No, yeah, I don't mean no. that when I say charming He's sharp He's a very sharp mm. brilliant person I think now you you touch on it there, and you did. You should also mention you did play in the Beauty Queen of Linan more yeah. recently. Yeah. Not in that, and you played that the, the role of the the nasty the, the nasty daughter, which originally. No, she wasn't nasty. She oh, was mis- lovely. misunderstood. You, she, yeah. she was lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You'd have to ask the mother about that one now. <laughs> um, yeah. The mother was yeah. killed tragically I, in yeah. some tragic accident. Yeah, because she misunderstood her daughter, <laughs> um, and and Mary Mullen, who had played the original. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, the it was an incredible experience. Then we ended up taking it back yeah. over to New York. So it was, and actually, we took it. I got an insight into how Martin translates across the world because it was a world tour. We ended up in Hong Kong, where we had um, screens on either side of the stage, and his language was being translated, and every single line zinged. Mm. You know, they got they got everything. So it's 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 just a it's he kind of writes universal themes I think yeah because and I will come to you again that's in a minute, right, that's okay uh, uh, you mentioned it uh, Ashley when you when you stole my question on me yeah. about about this you're is, welcome this, yeah, this is set in England I've let go of it um, <laughs> this is set in England how different you know can can you is there a very different temperature of the play. When it's when we're in the north of England, so we're not in London, which I think is probably important. We're in that more rural. It's not a rural setting, but we're we're not in the the, the cosmopolitan London. Yeah, is it is. a very? Is, is do you see similarities, or is it a very different world from the world of the of the Irish set plays? Um, number one, I'm kind of amazed at his uh, ability to write in the a north of England um, language. It's he's so. 
he's just again displaying brilliance uh, because it's I, I can't imagine him writing in any other I can't imagine him writing an Irish play for example <laughs> I, it feels it feels like yeah. a different kind of playwright but it's got all of his um, his panache I suppose but he's kind of um, examining the difference he's, he's he, it's set in the 1960s so he's just at the turn of kind of the consciousness in the yeah. world at the time so he's examining that and he's using the north of England which is sort of a very um, traditional culture and he's he, the, the character that comes from from sort of London is is turning into the is more the modern uh, sensibility. Right. He kind of represents, I suppose, the yeah. Beatles, the sixties, the yeah. future. This is the Mooney character, who's yeah. the stranger who so arrives. So there's a there's a smashing of of um, yeah of consciousness, I think. And I guess in some ways you could argue that the Irish players have those moments in them as well. They're kind of moments when the country is turning from from one kind of set of values into another. You often have that generational yeah. battle going on yeah. in the case of the Irish players. But uh, Ashley brings up that interesting detail that it's set in this north of England uh, dialect. I'm wondering, Andrew, would, would you say is it because I suppose the dialect that he uses in the Irish plays, you couldn't say it's realism. So are, are we in a kind of a version of the North of England? Is it a kind of a heightened type of language or version of that North of England accent? I, I guess so. I mean, it's similarly to the Irish plays, he brings his own rhythm, but it fits in that world. And it's the same here. Because so, I mean, when, I, when, I, when I read the play first, I couldn't believe how he, in his, he's using his rhythms but he's importing this language into his rhythm in some mm. bizarre yeah. way. And it is heightened and stretched. And it's it's funny, when we've been in rehearsal, we've, we've been trying, like, playing it one way, and it's like, oh, it gets a bit Mike Lee. Or, or you know what I mean? That you have, to, you have to go after his rhythm and language. And when you do, it does an awful lot of the work for you. Um, like, down to... You know, you ignore stage directions, I'm always doing it, and then you go back and go, actually, Martin gives a look here. Mm. When you play that look... Suddenly, the piece comes yeah. to life. It's it, like know, a Rubik's cube. It really is. Plays, if you like do it. He, from from a dot 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 to a a pause. If you if you just obey that, the the whole piece you find the rhythm, and then it just takes a life of its own. Yeah, because interestingly enough, I, I think I heard Colin Farrell talking about this, or, or it might have been Barry Kilgan. I can't remember which of them it was in and around. I mean, could have been Brendan Gleeson in and around the the, the, the Banshees of Inisherin. That the nature of the dialogue is that maybe on a film set you might imp- there might be more of an improvisatory feel around things, or you might leave a moment to kind of see what's going to happen in the silence. But they were saying, no, no, you don't, you know, <laughs> you don't change uh, a line. Uh, in fact, it was Aaron Monaghan speaking to me on this Aaron, very program. This That's who it was, Aaron. and Aaron was saying, you know, that that thing about the precision of the language in the movies as as well as in the in in the plays, it's there in That's that as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, he's razor. He's 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 a he's a writer. He's razor sharp, like uh, razor sharp yeah. as a writer. And if you say. If a word is out, you'll feel it in in mm. in the way you're delivering it, and it's it's um, it's uh, if you get into the gr- the right groove of it, the play just lifts off, uh, and the the themes underneath the play, which seems on the surface when you're saying these fantastic lines. You mm. you don't realise that there's a leviathan underneath of an idea. There's a great um, fish of an idea underneath the play that's yeah. just coming up. Uh, uh, 
I hope it's not a spoiler to say that the, uh, the best hangman in Britain makes an appearance in this play. He shows up. Pierpoint played brilliantly by Peter Gowan. Um, he does. And like all of Martin's plays, he sets things up in scene one that come to fruition in mm. scene seven. And... Uh, this, you know, I can't give away what exactly happens, but there's a showdown, um, to say the least. And very, very, I mean, that's the other thing about the play. It's extremely funny. Yeah. And, may, you know, amongst that uh, darkness, and in some ways, the darker you play it, the funnier it gets. Um, there's, there's, there is really, really some funny moments, contentious moments, challenging moments, but it, there's a, it's very entertaining. You, you, you were in touch with them about this production. I mean, and I suppose it is, what to 2015 and if you take out the pandemic years which we can kind of cast away as a bit of lost time it's very it is quite recent really in in those terms Do, was he in keen to change any aspect or to look to, to get different angles in, in it in this new production no I mean he was involved in he was completely all over the casting um, and he's you know Martin's busy right now he's really busy but he's in you know one of the, what he's brilliant for is if we have questions we can go to him mm. only yesterday I think I said to Ashley look at this an email came and it was like over porridge he decided actually I need to tell them this this is important for the top of act two and you get a you know a small email with some some words in capital letters some <laughs> words in smaller letters so he you know he he will be along um, but like not a word has really been changed and that's what I think is remarkable. Like I was in Druid as an ASM when Beauty Queen first was done and it's rare for a new play nothing to change. Like uh, normally you're working it and you're you're, Mm. that doesn't need to be there and that needs to be cut and not a word, not a word changed well, in any of those plays. It's, yeah. it's, it is remarkable. The other thing that I was wondering about, I, I, have you approached him on this one? You know, because there was much talk around uh, the Banshees of Inisherin having had its origins as, as a theatre piece. And when you, what Aaron said to me about the nature of the language in it, and when you look at the language in it, is it something that could make it do the opposite route than the usual one, come from the screen back to the stage? Is that just a... a, a a journey you'd be interested in talking to him about. I doubt it. So the history of that is Martin did go away. He went away to, I think, Mauritius to write a play called The Banshees of Inish Beog. And it, the, the plan was it would have been the third play of, the, of that trilogy, yeah. the Island Trilogy. So and you had the... the, the, the cripple. Cripple of Inish Man, the Lieutenant of Inish Moor. Mm-hmm. The Banshees of Inish... And I think it was called Inish Beog at the time. Right. And it just... When he sat down to write it, he said it didn't work. And that was it. Now, the film that, you know, is doing so well, yeah. I think all he's really taken from that initial idea is the title, which he's also kind of altered. Um, but the story of the film is not what he attempted to do in the play. But we were talking about this earlier. Um, it's interesting with Martin, none of his plays have been made into film. You know what I mean? They're plays, and I think his films are films. And I th- I'm pretty sure, no, I, he hasn't said that categorically. <laughs> yeah. But I imagine stuff like Beauty Queen and all, someone at some point went, well, that would make a great movie. Yeah. But I think Martin sees them as, that's live and that's in the theatre. Yeah, and of course, then there was that famous quote where he said, you know, theatre is the worst of all art forms. But I presume that was Martin with a big wooden spoon. <laughs> stirring <laughs> be it. a bit of that. Uh, <laughs> and I think as well, you know, when he was a young man, he wrote all, all that work, or certainly the, the, the like, Pillow Man, mm. The all those Irish plays all in about a, like a 10 or 12 month period and he was being rejected and being rejected and being rejected and I think a lot of that came from 
the plays he was going to see didn't excite him and he felt he had this work that was just being told this isn't good this isn't right um, but believed in it and that was what's incredible he had that absolute belief mm. this will happen and it did and we've mentioned um, you know the Harry who is uh, here Harry Wade who is a, a real life character is he or so there's a yeah there there is Harry Allen was right. the hangman with the dicky bow and there's no doubt that has been an inspiration for the character um uh, but like all the characters in the play, I think that's a launch pad for Martin. And he's, yeah. you know, he's he's not, um, it's certainly this not, is not a history play. No, no, it's not. Um, but it is based on that man. And, you know, even down to, you know, one of the characters, Hennessy, there was a man called Hanratty. You know, Ashley touched on it about this play being set at that time when the world is changing and the younger generation is kind of coming through and, they don't want that old order. They want rock and roll. They want to have wear funny suits or, or you know, cut mm. their hair a certain way. And that older order doesn't like that. And like John Lennon was one of the main, I suppose, people from the you know main celebrity who was protesting against capital punishment. And that's definitely in the yeah. play yeah. that, you know, the order is changing. And I guess Harry Wade is desperately trying to cling on to that patriarchal, old fashioned mm. It's my way or the highway attitude, but it's kind of rising in the in in the play. And where does Alice? Where does she fit in to you know that patriarchal world? Uh, you know, how, what kind of strength or otherwise does Martin McDonough give her in in that very much male dominated world? I think. I think there's an emancipation for her in her journey. Like it's, um, I'm, it, I don't know. It's an interpretation that's come through how we've been working in the room. But I definitely feel if you you scratch away at, uh, at what Martin gets at, there's deeper. There's always deeper elements, yeah. and we've plotted a kind of emancipation for this woman. Very sexist uh, world she's living in, but on the cusp of a freedom and kind of her daughter, the beautiful Olivia Byrne, um, a young actress yeah. who's, who's playing Shirley, uh, it, it sort of encapsulates the, the potential and the hope that this woman feels eventually. Yeah. So it's kind of, there's a beautiful journey for this character, but at the mo- mostly she's surrounded by testosterone yeah, <laughs> city. Yeah. 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 I grew up in a, a pub in Nina in the 80s and like, the amount of stuff in rehearsals where I'm going, well, yeah. let me tell you this story. Yeah. It was, it was a male-dominated world and that's definitely present in this play. Yeah, is, is, is it, are we looking at Ireland, you know, this is 65 in England, are we looking at Ireland of the 70s and 80s in some ways? I, well, I, I definitely yeah. think there's, there's similarities, Ireland. yeah. It's very, very much an English play yeah. and both set in Oldham. Nice. Yeah. yeah. All right. I might have put the wind up you earlier on when I said March the 11th. I think March the 11th is the first preview. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. March yeah. the 11th is yeah. the first preview. First preview. But, and they're so important, the previews, because with Martin's plays, the yeah. the audience gets so invested in yeah. you know the, the the comic nature, but also the shock nature and the um, well. That's where that's where you learn where, where the laugh lines yeah. are and all of the rest of it, and where they're not, where you thought they might have been, etc. Listen, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Best Sean. of luck with it we all. It's a great conversation. And, uh, that's Getty Productions in association with Decadent Theatre Company presenting Martin McDonough's Hangman, and delighted to have Ashton O'Sullivan, one of the cast, Andrew Flynn, director, director in with us. It opens on March the fifteenth.
Good man, so Sean. You can put the you can put the hanky <laughs> away and wipe the sweat off your brow. It runs through until April the eighth. You'll get full details on GatyTheatre.ie. And thanks to Ashley and Andrew for coming into us this evening. My next guest, musical talent, can be traced back to a father who was a concert master with the orchestra of the twenty of twentieth uh, century Fox, while his mother came from a family of cellists and became first cellist cellist at Warner's in Hollywood. Among their colleagues and friends were Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra. In fact, such was the friendship with Sinatra that he often sang my guest when a child off to sleep. Speaking, of course, of maestro Leonard Slatkin, who returns for the next two Fridays to conduct the National Symphony Orchestra in works by Wagner, Elgar, Mendelssohn and Debussy on March the 3rd. And the following Friday, March the 10th, works by Joan Tarr, Cindy McTee, Leonard Bernstein and Rachmaninoff. Very nice to see you again, Leonard Slatkin. Good to see you too. Uh, The last time we spoke was, in fact, I was saying to you just before we came to our 2019, uh, you were you worked with the National Symphony Orchestra, then the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, right. twice that year. And I remember you telling me the story of your work, Kina, which it was it was a word that means lament, a bit like the Irish word Queena. Uh, and and, and, and I, I was reading in that you, you write prolifically I do. Uh, on, on your website. And I was reading that you specifically mentioned the, the joy of that night and the connection that you made with the orchestra. Yes, it's been a wonderful association we've had now. I think this is the fourth year we've been working together on a regular basis. And sometimes you get to a place and you just go, these are people that I want to see all the time. And the surprise, of course, is no, it's not the Berlin Philharmonic and all that, but it doesn't matter. When you have a group of musicians who just want to make music, enjoy being there, the communication is what you want, you remember why you got into this profession in the first place. And that's what the National Symphony does for me. Communication, that's a very interesting word that you use there. It's the communication that mm-hmm. matters because the, the presumption often is, oh, it, the conductor does all the communicating, commanding outwards. Tell me about the communication well, that comes back, actually. With me, it's a two-way street. The conductor is really just another musician and the one who actually makes the least sound, hopefully. So I'll conduct, I'll show through my gestures, facial features, whatever, roughly what I want to do, and they'll in kind give back what they're receiving for me. But at the same time, I'm listening to what they're producing. So imagine, for example, you're a guest at someone's home. When you arrive, and say you're going to stay there for one week, you do not move the furniture around. You make yourself comfortable within that surrounding. But if you're there for two weeks, maybe that chair goes in the corner somewhere else. (laughs) So one plus of the two weeks is that we get to know each other so well that I might say, you know, in this spot, let's try playing this with a different kind of sound. Or perhaps here, I know you might be used to playing it such and such a way, but can we try it this way? My teacher used to have a wonderful phrase. He said, conduct from what you receive. And that means when an orchestra is playing, often their collective instinct just might have a better idea of something in a piece of music than you do. And when that happens, you have this dialogue. I'm listening to them, they're listening to me, and we are collaborating and finding the commonalities 
between our ways of thought. So hopefully we produce a result that's part me and part the orchestra and comes together as something individual and unique. So that blows us out of the water, this whole idea of the, the ego of the conductor. Well, that's changed a lot in the last 25, 30 years. We used to have autocrats, people who literally could mm. sack you then and there. It was a mm. Fritz Reiner, the great Hungarian conductor. My father used to tell a story when he was in the Curtis Institute of Music of Reiner adding a double bass part to a work of Beethoven that didn't have one. And Reiner systematically went through each player to play a passage alone in the double bass section, didn't like it, and said, out. And he wound up dismissing the entire bass section. Well, you couldn't do that, anything like that today. I've been talking to people. I'm, I'm writing a series of, I don't know if I call them reviews or not, but a project that I think is going to become a book, which is really reviews of movies that have been about classical music going all the way back to the 1920s and looking at them only from the perspective of a classical musician. What do I see in this film? So I'm not really reviewing mm. the, the, the merit so much, but rather, what do they get right? What don't they get right? So recently, of course, people are talking about this film, Tar. Tar, of course, with and Kate Blanchett. my yeah. basic feeling here is not about the film itself. It's the idea that her character is something we would have seen 40 to 50 years ago, an autocratic conductor basically wanting and getting everything she wanted through the sheer ego of her mm. personality. And maybe that's a dichotomy in the film because it, she couldn't exist that way today as portrayed in the film. But she could have existed 40, 50 years ago if there had been more women conductors at the time. There is another interesting aspect to, to that film. There were, there were many interesting aspects to mm -hmm. that film, but there is an interesting discussion that comes up in and around, you know, when you're playing the music, it gets, is Bach is the particular one that's used in this case. You know, can you play the music of Bach because he was a white superior male back in the time and had fathered loads of children around the place? And, you know, uh, and that he was he he is he is not the best model for people. Uh, and can you play retrospectively? How do you fit that into the 21st century? A lot depends on whether or not you believe that any composer any playwright, any screenwriter, anybody who creates something, whether or not their background and elements in their personal life affect the end product. So when we hear Bach, I don't think about the children. I don't think about what he was doing at the time. I'm just going, does this music touch me? And I don't care what his background is. So for me personally, it is a matter of just separating out to me if it touches me. And if it mm. does, then the other stories are incidental. Whether you like the composer or not That's is, right. is, is a kind of a, or the way he or she conducts to, to themselves. To me anyway, yeah. not to everybody. Yeah, and, and you accept that others yeah. think differently. Let's go to the some of the music that you're playing in the two concerts. I'll just start with one of the songs from the wonderful sea pictures of... Edward Elgar. Uh, 
I just I, I won't let it get into another stanza because if we do let it get and into I'll another be crying, stanza, we'll be crying. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Slatkin is with me in studio this evening, and see pictures of Edward Elgar is one of the, the first concert, which is this coming Friday. Leonard is very much. Maritime based. Well, it's all based on yeah, it's all pieces sea, related to sea the sea, as is one of the pieces in the following week. So I'm going to be underwater for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, the, I, I was asking that. That was Janet Baker, mm. Sir John Barbarelli, yeah. I think it's the, the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra that he's, he's conducting there, uh, probably recorded in Abbey Road, I would, I would guess, probably probably done there. I asked you, did you do you know the first time you heard, well, maybe not that recording, but you know the first time well, you heard it. Well, I heard it, uh, I, first time I ever heard it was live with Janet Baker before I knew the work at all. And it was in Chicago where she sang it. And then eventually I had the great honor of being able to do it with her one time in St. Louis when I was the uh, just before I was the music director, I guess. Uh, and it, it's an interesting work, these five songs. One can argue that the poetry is a little less than great in many cases, but the music is so extraordinary. That song we just heard, I mean, mm. it's, it's just moving beyond beyond the words. That's the best way to say it. Did, did Elgar write them? Because I, I was listening today, I was searching around for the Janet Baker mm. um, on Spotify, and I came across a piano version. I thought, oh, it loses so well, much when you don't have the orchestra there. Did he write them as orchestra? Not sure. I imagine he wrote them at the piano first mm. and then made it for orchestra. But I don't know what the first published version is. As far as I know, it was thought of as an orchestral work, but probably written at the piano. Um, Tell me a little bit about, to go back to our communication um, side of our, the discussion, tell me about the communication that comes back or did come back from somebody of the stature and brilliance of Janet Baker when you were conducting her in that performance. When you have a great artist and you're a young musician, especially a conductor, you just listen to everything they have to say. You soak it in because they're teaching it to you. And eventually you will pass along whatever information you glean to others. So she was very kind. Most most of the great artists, if they have a feeling for the person they're working with and feel that it's going to be a good collaboration, they will go out of their way to make sure you understand their intent and convey it to you because they want a great performance as well. And true, a conductor can ruin this by a wrong tempo, a balance that goes awry. So not only do you want to do it well, but the artist does as well. They're mostly in business not to ruin the performance for anybody. And have you have you conducted Jennifer Johnson in this before? No, or this, this is the be, first this... time I'd be working with her. I'm really looking forward to it. And again, I suppose that will be a that will be a communi- a two way communication. We will know tomorrow. Yeah, and, and <laughs> would you sit at would you, will you will you and she go in and sit at the piano for a while first, or what happens? I'll there? probably meet with her for about fifteen minutes. It's mostly just let's establish the tempos. Where do you need to take a breath that mm. I perhaps don't anticipate? Where will I need to hold the orchestra back? There are a couple of moments that are very heavily scored. And I don't know her voice in person, so I'm not sure when she goes on a very low note if we need to lessen the dynamic a little bit so she can be heard. And you have to understand there's no amplification going on yeah. here. So we want to make sure that every word and every note is heard. Yeah, because the, the words, I, I, I take your point that perhaps the poetry isn't the greatest poetry in the world, but it's still... Nobody it, said it well. Yeah. That's the important yeah, thing. You, you understand you, everything and every word that's being sung. And you do need to hear the words to do that. I'm going to go to, to I suppose, perhaps one of the most popular pieces that you're playing on, on Friday night, just to give a sense of how the sea is created in this particular work, which probably needs no introduction. 
It's a real sweeping sea that Mandelson creates for us in the Hebrides Overture, it isn't is. it? And you have that kind of, in some ways, it's a kind of a, it's sitting, it didn't sit alongside, but it's mirroring uh, Debussy's La Mer in the second half of the problem. La Mer is a much bigger piece. How different are they in terms of how they paint the sea, would you say? Any composer who attempts to depict nature has a massive tack, a, a, a massive, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, uh, task in front mm. of them. Because there's nothing greater than nature. Yeah, and yeah. no matter what you do, the power and the beauty of nature cannot really be described either in words or by the music. However, that being said, in the case of Mendelssohn, DBC, Wagner, and Elgar, they're trying to convey both the beauty of the ocean and its rugged nature as well. The Mendelssohn, for example, will take us crashing against the rocks, as will Debussy. That will happen uh, in the mm. last movement of that. And the Mendelssohn is one of those works, you're right, it's one of the more popular pieces by a composer who's not heard so much these days. And I've always loved this piece. It's just somehow very special, uh, creates a world in a way unlike any that he had done before. One quick fast story for you. Uh, one we were talking about this here. The library asked me, which version of the overture did I want to do? And I said, what? I didn't know there was more than one. It was four. There are two versions he wrote in Rome and two that he wrote in London. I just said, we'll just play what we all know, <laughs> not knowing which one it was. So you, I, mean, I presume you've seen the score now. And you know, I have seen all yeah. four versions. Yes. I want to play a little, little bit of something from the second concert just to give us a, a flavour of it. Mm -hmm. um, um, and it's because I, I want you to say that, well, I'm not going to ask you to say the big words over this drum beat. So there's such amazing, yep. uh, 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 the percussion section would be busy. This is from the On the Waterford Symphonic Suite of Leonard Bernstein. I mean, there's so much we could say about him, but, you know, it's impossible not to see Marlon Brando saying, I could no. have been a contender when no. you hear those drums, isn't it? No, it's, the, the film was a wonderful film. And it was Bernstein's only foray into Hollywood, and he hated it. He really didn't like it. He vowed he would never do a film again, and he didn't. Mm. So it was not a happy experience, but drawing the music away from the film where he had much more control. Remember, when you do a film, it becomes up to the producer and director and others to put their hands into it and manipulate it. Uh, and Bernstein didn't like giving up that much control. He truly didn't. But he did create this marvelous suite from it that gives all the highlights and gives you a pretty good feeling for what the intent is of the film. It was a tough film. Yeah, so it's a symphonic suite, as he did with West Side Story. He drew a symphonic suite from that as well. But the West Side Story suite is very different because that came from a Broadway show, not yeah. the film. And the suite from West Side Story is actually put together by two other people. Bernstein said, okay, let's drop this one, this one. But he left it to other people to actually make. Uh, one final question. Uh, Bradley Cooper is playing Bernstein in a film. Have you seen this film? No, it's not out yet. So 
as far as I know, nobody's seen it yet. I don't know if it's edited and finished. Mm. And of course, we'll all look forward to it. Be interesting to see what it comes out like. And I'll be reviewing it eventually. (laughs) (laughs) When the time comes. In terms of its musical. Musical intent. What did they get right? What didn't they get wrong? Okay. Uh, Leonard, lovely to see you. Thanks so much for coming into us. That's Leonard Slatkin. And Leonard will be conducting the National Symphony Orchestra uh, this Friday, March the 3rd. Uh, Wagner, uh, the overture to the Flying Dutchman is what's involved there. The Elgar Sea Stories that we just heard. Sea Pictures, rather. Mendelssohn and Debussy. And on Friday, March the 10th, music from three American greats, Joan Tarr, Cindy McTeeve. So female uh, composers being represented well there, as well as Bernstein, who we just heard, and Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto is what we will be hearing on that night. Enjoy the visit and hope to see you again soon. I'll see you next year around this time. Well, I hope so. Okay. That's Leonard Slatkin and you can find out full information on the concerts on nch.ie. However, it is Tuesday at the moment, or is it Wednesday? I can't remember which it is. And so I am here, based on the New York Times best-selling novel Daisy, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six. It follows the story of the fictional 1970s band fronted by two feuding lead singers, Daisy Jones and Billy Dunn. Their complicated musical partnership catapulted the band from obscurity to unbelievable fame. And then after a sold-out show, they suddenly called it quits. It stars Riley Keough as Daisy Jones, Sam Claffin as Billy Dunn, and is based on the novel by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It will also feature original songs written and produced by Phoebe Bridgers, Jackson Brown and Blake Mills. Jen Gannon has been watching uh, Daisy Jones and the Six Force and she's with me in studio this evening. <laughs> First thing I have to ask you, I mean, I was watching the... I wonder what this what this band were really like because mm. it has really got the ring of truth about it from the very outset. Doesn't yeah, it? there is. I mean, I think people took that book to their hearts um, because of the way that it's shaped and it is loosely based on the kind of lore and myth around Fleetwood Mac when they were recording rumours and that tumultuous relationship between Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham and also just like Mick Fleetwood as well trying to, you know, having to relinquish control almost of the band that he started so Billy Dunn would be kind of a a mix of those two and then Daisy Mm. Jones is this almost you know Stevie Nicks kind of figure as well so I think that's why it gripped people because it felt like a behind the scenes uh, look maybe at a band that were very in tune with that that band themselves with with Fleetwood Mac themselves and I think that's what people really hooked them in because they feel it's a very familiar world Uh, you know if you've watched any kind of documentary about you know those 70s bands you feel comfortable in it you're you're you know, in the action straight away, it's full of like fringe and suede and Afghan coats and, you know, crackly vinyl and candles and all of that kind of stuff. And I think people, you know, from the get go, you, you know where you are. All right. Well, yeah, I suppose you've given us some of the basic setup mm. there, but this is this is shot as if it were a documentary. That's what it feels like. It is. It's done. It's like they, they stick close to the book's narrative. There are slight tweaks here and there, but they retain that kind of Rashomon style where it's recollections of the bands who have kind of reunited now separately mm. to do separate interviews about, you know, the behind the scenes making of the, that album Aurora, which is kind of like their rumours. So they've reunited in the 90s to talk about the band and how it imploded. Um, so there is a lot of, you know, unreliable narrators in the mix here as well. And it, you know, it, it does... It's very easy to slip into the show, I will say. It's, you know, 
Amazon are releasing it every week. So it's, it comes out on Friday, you'll have an episode a week. And I think they're doing that because they're trying to stop people from binging because it is so watchable, I will say for it. It's such an easy watch. You could, you know, slip by and then you, you've watched four or five episodes very but quickly. Isn't that extraordinary? Just and I'll come, come back to the main body of it in a minute. But isn't it extraordinary that, you know, the, the whole thing with the streaming services when they started out was, no, you can watch it all. You can mm. watch it all in one go. And, and then it's no, 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 we'll, we'll drip feed you week by week, which is for a few reasons, not yeah. least of which is advertising, etc., etc. Yeah. Et it's about money. They, yeah. So don't give them, and, and there's no water cooler moment. You know, no. people say, don't talk to me about that series. I'm watching, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm only in episode spoiler three. Spoiler alert, don't yeah. tell me. Like, and you're like, when does the spoiler alert stop? Like, how many yeah. years? Can you spoil Star Wars, the original Star Wars yeah. for people now? Is that okay? Has the statue of limitations like lifted off that? That's the world we live in now. So I think like it will take time because it's slow. Like the first three episodes for me, it didn't really click until episode four. So people will have to give it time to to actually start moving and getting involved. And the reason why is because if Daisy Jones is not on screen, it can be pretty plodding. Right. So I was I was going to ask the main you, issue. Yeah, <laughs> she she is really the and Daisy Jones being uh, being Riley Joe. And, and even in the opening section, it's a while before we see her, I think. They don't reunite. They actually don't unite as a band. She's added into the mix of the band mm. by a very astute producer, Teddy, uh, who is kind of, he's almost like a Motown, you know, t- type of Barry Gordy dupe. Mm. And he shrewdly sets the band together, pushes Billy and Daisy together as two head, headstrong songwriters and melds her world with this, the rock band The Six. And that's how they come together. But that doesn't actually happen until around episode four. So there's a lot of laborious setups before we actually get to the meat and purpose of the whole show itself. Yeah, yeah, because we get, we get all of the family backgrounds. And yeah. I, I kind of thought, because I only got a chance to watch a bit of the first episode and you're thinking, come on, get on with yes, it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and that, that is a problem. And I think the way that, I think if it had been a film even, and if they had it, you know, mm. tried to, you know, match it together a little bit tighter. I mean, talking about albums and bands, make things tighter, get to the chorus. Yeah. That's what we want. And the chorus is seeing... Billy and Daisy interact and, you know, seeing them go against each other at loggerheads because he's supposed to be there, this very serious musician who doesn't take her seriously as a songwriter because she's this pill popping free spirit. And then when they come together, there's supposed to be fireworks. There's supposed to be the chemistry that we saw jumping off screen with Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Again, we'll mention yeah. him in A Star is Born, but we don't get that. OK, well, let's let's have a listen to a little section between uh, Daisy Kyo or Riley Kyo as Daisy and uh, Sam Claffin as Billy. Uh, she It's a discussion, but he's just, they're, they're in studio, they're doing a recording and the discussion is about um, what's what's the song about? Mm. A, a question that songwriters love. <laughs> what's your song about? Um, let's hear to how it works out for the two of them when they start talking in that fashion. Why don't we give her version a go and uh, just see how it sings? Her version is like a completely different song, Teddy. Can I ask you a question? What do you think the song's about? What do I think the song is about? What the song yeah, that what I wrote? Song what about? do I think the song that I wrote is about? It's about starting a new life, okay. Daisy. It's about redemption. Redemption from, from what? From letting people down. So guilt. It's about guilt. No, it's not about guilt. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pry or anything. I'm just trying to, you know, get us on the same page and understand the story better so that I can help, which is, I think that's why I'm here. I'm assuming it's about you. Okay, so you let somebody down, 
right? And now you're you're saying, you know, everything's fine. Look at us now. Everything's in the past. It, nothing. Yeah, it what's wrong with that? I don't believe it. And it doesn't sound honest. And it sounds simple. And I don't know you very well. You don't seem simple to me. And that's Riley Keough and Sam Claffin as Daisy Smith and Billy Dunn, respectively, in Daisy Jones and the Six, a uh, new series that Jen Gannon is speaking to us about this evening. Um, what is the chemistry between the two of them? Less, <laughs> your, your, less, minus the, chemistry. Is there chemistry, perhaps, I should no, say? No, I mean, I think the problem is because Riley Keough is really, very. She, she's a star, and she has this easy charisma to her. The character is very, it's quite difficult to play because she could just dissolve into that, you know, manic pixie dream girl kind of trope, yeah. but she doesn't. She reigns it in, but she also makes you feel for her. She is play, radiating at this very high level. And it feels sometimes unfair to have her partnered with weaker actors. And unfortunately, Sam Claffin as Billy doesn't even come close to being her equal. He is insubstantial against her performance. He has the same expression, the same blank grimace, whether he has marital issues, you know, with his saintly wife, Camilla, or if he's, you know, talking about his booze love in early days, or if he's testing out a new song, it's the same face. And there is nothing for her to, to jump off with. There's She leads the show and she leads it superbly. And I think without her, we would be looking at a complete, you know, absolute, it would be dire. And but, but it is called Disney. It is called Daisy Jones and the Six. It's yeah. not called Billy Dunn and the Six. But Billy and, and Daisy, if anybody's read the book and they love mm. the book, they will know that the two narratives are so important yeah. and how they come together and they're fighting and how they cope with, you know, each other, those egos in this band. And he, it, she's playing at a 10 and 11 and he's playing at sixes and fives. And do you think that, that they might have anything to do with the, the transfer from stage to screen? Because you, you, we're talking about Reese Witherspoon's production company mm. here, you know, Hello Sunshine little fires everywhere, big little lies and where the crawdad sings. It's not as if they're not used to bringing books no, but to I, the screen. I do think it's very difficult to show the reality of the music industry and that quicksilver magic that you're when you're a creative artist. I think it's very hard to show that on screen. I think even someone like Martin Scorsese failed at it with vinyl. It was extremely mm. boring. And then Danny Boyle had the abysmal pistol about the sex pistols and their history and it was just horrific. And I think this falls into that same trap. But I also think the really easily digestible digestible cliches and sentimentality that you had in the book and people enjoyed about the book that doesn't transfer favourably to the to the screen because it feels like a soap opera. Every week they're leaving you with this big cliffhanger and it's like this it's like a soft rock soap opera it's not like I think audiences now you know not everything has to be on television as nihilistic as the White Lotus mm. or as complex or nuanced as Succession but I do think audiences are more demanding they're more sophisticated when it comes to how a story is told and this does fall below that standard. So it's it's two things then that are a problem. The, the adaptation is mm. a problem uh, as well as Sam Claffin. Yeah, as well as like, and, and the actors around them as well, mm. because I do think also that you have someone who's quite a novice, like uh, Camilla Munro. She's, she's a model and she plays one of the main characters. She plays Billy's long-suffering wife who is a photographer and she is really just reading lines and, and that's very, it's quite difficult to watch sometimes when you compare it to this powerhouse performance that Riley Keough is, is trying to to bring to this and I also think like there's a problem with the way it looks it's extremely clean 
and anodyne. And that mm. is, we're supposed to be in a 70s, like the post Charles Manson LA that was filled for a, full of paranoia that Joan Didion wrote, you know, the White Album about that Jim Morrison was in the Whiskey A Go Go going crazy on stage. It doesn't feel like that. Also, just as a side note for myself, they're all men in a band in the 70s in a rock band and not one of them has a beard. How did that happen? How did that escape our notice? They're, you know, they look like they're the Brady Bunch and Billy half the time looks like a very clean Russell Brand and that's disturbing for anybody <laughs> watching a show about 70s rock. It, it's too clean. Yeah, well, I suppose then and Marcus Mumford is, wrote the song. Then. So there's, a beard, there's a beard in the song. There's, there's a beard in the song, but there's no beards on stage. Right, because um, I'm going to finish up by listening to a little bit of, of Daisy because this is the daughter of the late uh, and Lisa she, Marie Presley. she gives it all and her, she has a beautiful voice and I think the songs are great I think the songs are very catchy and people will enjoy them but I do think the problem is that Daisy Jones Riley Keough deserved a better backing band Alright so you didn't you're not recommending Not a huge fan Not a huge fan Daisy Jones and the Six available on Prime Video from video from Friday March the 3rd Let's finish up with a little bit of Daisy singing Look at Us Now Not according to Jen Gannon, they can't make a good thing bad. Or maybe they can't make a bad make, thing good. They can't make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is uh, Look at Us Now from Daisy Jones and the Six. It was the voice of both Sam Claffin and uh, Riley Kyo that we heard in there. So that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passer-Devine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.